On this episode of How to Succeed in Evil, I talk with a man who is... Quite simply, a, a sociopath. Okay, all kidding aside, that's Levi Stahl. He's a prince of a guy. And he is the guy who's responsible for the resurgence of Donald Westlake slash Richard Stark's Parker novels by bringing pretty much all of them back into print at the University of Chicago Press. Um, I would, I'm happy to claim a lot of the credit for getting them back out. Uh, I will leave credit for the resurgence to, um, to Westlake and the character in the books because, you know, you aren't going to have a resurgence if the books weren't good in the first place. Okay, sanity and modesty duly noted. But the story here, beyond the story of Parker, who has to be one of the best bad guy protagonists of all time, is that Levi got to do this. I, I think most of the time in life you don't get a chance to seriously repay artists who've made your life better, who've, who've brought you pleasure and joy. You know, your, your form of repaying them is to buy the, buy the thing they made and maybe tweet about it, tell friends, and to actually have gotten the chance to take some things he'd done, make them into something that people would appreciate and make it easy for them to get it, and give and through that, give a chance for people one last time to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, this guy was great. You know, I, I feel really lucky to have gotten to do that. So this week on How to Succeed in Evil, Levi Stahl and all things Parker. Some men just want to watch the world burn. World burn. This is How to Succeed in Evil. You need people like me so you can point your fingers and say, that's the bad guy. Just want to watch the world burn. An ongoing exploration of what makes bad guys good. Oh, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And I'm Patrick E. McLean. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world it didn't exist. The first question I have is, how responsible are you for the resurgence uh, of Parker and getting those books published with the University of Chicago again, all those, because um, they're all back out now, right? Almost all, all the ones we could do. Um, I would, I'm happy to claim a lot of the credit for getting them back out. Uh, I'll, I will leave credit for the resurgence to, um, to Westlake and the character in the books, because, you know, you aren't going to have a resurgence if the books weren't good in the first place. But, but yeah, the actual reprints and bringing back into print was mostly, it was me with then a lot of help from my colleagues. Um, I read my first Parker novel in in about three hours one afternoon, actually here at the office waiting for Thanksgiving to roll around as the day before Thanksgiving. I was heading home. Uh, my wife and I were driving downstate, and I just picked it up at lunch at the bookstore. Not, I had read some Westlake, but not much, and hadn't. I'd liked it, but not. It, it wasn't a big thing in my mind, and I just picked this up to read in the afternoon because the media world was dead and my staff was mostly gone. So I was just here in case something caught fire. So I just sat and started reading it. And then two hours later, when my wife stopped by to pick me up for the drive, I was, I was like, um, I, I can't drive. I said I would drive, but I can't drive. I have to finish this book and then I'll drive. <laughs> and, and from there it moved real fast. Like, and again, nice work on the part of my colleagues. I, I grabbed as many as I could find through used book outlets and read them and got to where I was convinced that, these were all good enough that we should jump on it. And by the next summer, we had the first three out. And it was fun to see the response from that point from the public 
we had high good expectations for them, but you know we were going back to press almost immediately because people people really helped us out in the world. People, re, you know, reissued books don't get reviewed straight up that often in the book review media because there's there's little enough space for truly new books. But we got attention from kind of everybody out there who was a Parker fan, uh, including people like uh, Marilyn Stasio made room for some for a mention in their her Times book review column, and Stephen King noted them in this entertainment weekly column that he was still doing back then. And so, and the response was all, oh, it's so good. These are back. If you haven't tried them, jump in. And so now we've got 20 of them plus the four grow fields. Uh, the last four are still in various stages of rights, either being in print or rights being held by other publishers, but we're always knocking on the door just every once in a while trying to, to make sure that they aren't available. And the minute, the minute that we get the sign they are, we will wrap up our series. Yeah. I, I uh, I stumbled onto them about three and a half years ago, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit before that. And we had, um, it was the year my son was born. And you know that sort of exhausted, if, if you're a parent, you know that exhausted sort of sleepless time or whatever. I read all of them kind of in that time. <laughs> that in, would make for a strange introduction to parenting, I, could, I would think. Well, it was, I just remember it was around, like, at a dead heat. And I read... Um, uh, not as voraciously as I used to because I don't have time, but I read quite eclectically, um, and I just couldn't. I just couldn't put them down. Uh, yeah, I will lend them to friends. I'll lend two or three at a time, and within a week they'll be coming back for more. It, it, they're that kind of books. You just do not want to stop. And not to spoil anything, but I think uh, there's so very few people I could talk to about this. The effect that's created by the time they get. I don't know, 10 books in with Butcher's Moon? Yeah. I mean, that thing is... Well, and the great thing about Butcher's Moon, and I guess we should be clear that there's risk here for people who haven't read any of it, but I... I the, it, so it's the 14th book, I believe, and it caps off a run that is... You know, if there's a low point in the series, which I think the low point in the series is still pretty high, I would say it's around the Black Eye score. There's, there's been a couple in a row there that are good, but not new, you know they're 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 still fun to read. They're, they're quick. They're exciting. But, but you're not. You yeah, don't you read feel it. like you're. Yeah, and with a lot of writers, that is a sign it's wrapping up, or they're going to keep doing it, and it's just going to get. It, like somebody like like Robert Parker Spencer books, they were never not fun because these were fun characters, but they weren't new after about twelve fifteen books. Yeah, uh, yeah. and whereas with Westlake, I I don't know what. I, mean, I think I know what happened is the sense that you get from reading it is that he he did not ever settle. He was such a craftsman. With, so what happened with him was he just, we, you, the feeling that he redoubled his efforts. And so you get a run of books coming through there. Plunder Squad, um, the Sour Lemon Score, the Slay Ground. Um, and you come up on Butcher's Moon and you've just had this run of books that are so hard and so intense and so well done each getting better than the other. And then Butcher's Moon kind of caps off the series. It brings together all these characters from earlier in the series who you'd seen in, you know, a little bit of here and there. And it has Parker acting uncharacteristically to a point where the reader is surprised, and then so are his fellow heisters. And it's full of action, and it's longer, and it's dramatic. It's an amazing book, and you can see why it for so long was the, the one people talked about. And, and then he went silent for 20 years. <laughs> like, yeah. And, 
And the the difficulty, you know, that he pointed out, which I totally see, is it, it becomes harder and harder to be a criminal in a world full of cameras. Yeah. And if if I had been a Parker reader at the time, in those 20 years of silence, I would have just assumed that this guy wasn't coming back, and that would be part of it, was because this is a fundamentally realistic series, and it just isn't becoming, you know, there aren't payrolls out there to be heisted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the fact that Westlake at some point found the voice again and just started writing them, and they're as hard and Parker is as, as serious a character as he was ever before, it's pretty impressive. And I, I can't imagine how exciting it must have been as a reader at that moment when you first hear that there's going to be a new Parker after it's, 20, 23 years. It, it's another Star Wars that you know is going to be good. Yeah. Like it has to be that. Exciting, right. Right? Star Wars where, where you've been, you've been assured that Jar Jar Binks is nowhere near it. Yeah. Yes. So, um, to, to bring this back around to the, the how to succeed in evil part, what I do is I edit this together a little bit like, uh, Oh, it's a, this American life ask good Chicago reference there for you. Um, uh, so I'll do a little intro and then I really have two questions for everybody, which is, you know, who's, okay. who's your favorite, uh, who's your favorite villain and what's your favorite scheme? But for this, it seems more appropriate that we talk about um, just the character of Parker because he, he's so singular. You know, there's not really anybody like a Parker. Yeah. Um, how and would, I think that's... Oh, go ahead. Well, how would you summarize? or Tell me what, why you think that is and how would you summarize this character? Well, I think the big thing about Parker is that he is exactly what we are presented with that there's no there's nothing else there in a certain sense we don't he's not a man with depths or hidden motivations or anything he is quite simply a a sociopath who whose sociopathy just takes the form of not caring what's between him and his goal his he is he is machine-like in that way. He doesn't. He doesn't respond to things the way normal humans do, either on an ethical level or an emotional level, and that has enabled him to become incredibly good at this one very specific thing: running heists. And the the weird thing about that is, it it's a strange it's a strange job and a strange goal. He, you are trying to accumulate money, but this is for a man who, even though we see him on the beach in the early books and we see that he's got a home, we don't get the sense that the money itself is a great motivating factor because what's he going to do with it? He's not someone who celebrates or he doesn't have a life. He doesn't have an interior or an exterior life, really. He's he's like a shark. Yeah, exactly. That's a great comparison. He is just a moving machine that does this thing. And it's what I find particularly fascinating about him is that because he's that way, we see the interactions he has with other people in a kind of clinical way that helps us without, without being too analytical about it, helps us understand individual psychology. Cause he is basically looking at everyone around him at all times and figuring out how they're responding to things not because he responds that way, but because he's seen people respond that way in the past to similar events and similar approaches. So he's always calculating, how do I get the most out of this person in this situation to, so I can accomplish my goal? 
and I just find it endlessly fascinating watching his mind work. And then, of course, there's the fact that he is also a bad guy and a killer. And Westlake was so good at, like, he had a realization early on that if you make someone the protagonist of the book, it's very hard not to identify with them, even when one part of your brain is saying, um, that's not a hero. Why do I want him to succeed? You just roll along wanting to watch this guy succeed because he's the mind you're with and he is fun to watch work. Well, I think that he's undoubtedly fun to watch work and you have a tremendous sympathy for this horrible character who, if you put him in any other book or make him not the protagonist, is a villain, right? I mean, just a oh, yeah. bad, yeah. bad 100%. guy. I, but as I've read all of them and I've thought about them, I'll bounce this idea off you and see what you think. It, he's really the competent guy. You know, he's the guy, he's yeah. the professional. And everybody who yeah. is his antagonist, sure, they might steal the stuff, but they're sloppy or they're unprofessional or they break the code. Yeah. Luke Sant wrote a piece for the NYRB back in the 80s, I want to say, uh, maybe in the 90s when the second round of books came out, but about these as novels of work. They're about work and about doing a job well. And one thing that they key into for me is that um, there's, a, there's an aspect of masculinity that I, I realize I find more personally appealing than most most external trappings of masculinity in our society. And that's the one of omnicompetence. It's, it's the, the James Bond able to do anything in any situation. It's, um, it comes up in Hillary Mantle's Wolf Hall. Her Thomas Cromwell is, there's a passage at one point where they talk about how he can fix a fight. He can price a carpet. He can, uh, arrange a marriage and just run through all these disparate things that he can do better than anyone. And the seductive appeal of that is, Ooh, I, yeah, that's the person I want to be is real and parker is that guy he is the hyper competent super professional who works harder at it than you do puts in more time also does it better and makes fewer mistakes and deals with crisis better and 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 he's what you want to be in the workplace only at your workplace when when you do screw up or when your colleagues screw up you swear and you keep working in his you die yeah there's there's no net. That's a that's a, that's a very very interesting point, because we all as the world gets more and more complicated. Uh, I, I know some people who, um, uh, Sean Coyne, I guess was the first guy that uh, who wrote this. He said the thriller is the genre of our time, because we all feel overwhelmed by very complex things. So that that oh, feeling. Oh yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. That feeling of having omnicompetence, or you struggle against these tremendous odds. It gives you this. Uh, uh, catharsis uh, gives you that feeling of everything's going to be okay. Well, and I think that's one of the, that the, the genius of Westlake in these books lies in the pitting of Parker's omnicompetence against the fact that kind of drove all of Westlake's writing. And I think was one of his creeds in life, which is that things go wrong and things go wrong because that's the world we live in. And also because people aren't very good at any of the things they try to do really with all kind of a botched job. And in the Dortmunder books, that sparks comedy in because Dortmunder is also very competent. That's the thing. Dortmunder is a really good planner and heister, and the guys he's working with are all pretty good in their way. It's mostly that things just go wrong because they go wrong. And in Parker, it's that distinction is emphasized much more. That you know, Parker is the guy, and his colleagues range from P 
people like Grofield who are very competent to guys who you, know, you can't figure out how they've lasted in this business even through one heist. And watching him play off and try to work with that existing fallen state of the world is, is the fun. Obviously, if the high song went well all the time, there's no book. The fun is watching somebody who is who can do anything be confronted by the fact that the world refuses to conform. So, um, what would you if you had to pick? If you had to pick a favorite, or if you had to pick a favorite moment? Because I think about those books in terms of like a long. It's like a series of television, right? I mean, it should, mm-hmm. that if I had if I could wave a magic wand, I would make that for HBO. Right. Yeah, it would make a great long-form TV series, uh, much better than the movie. Although, sorry, side side digression. I do think that getting back to the character of Parker, part of the reason it's been difficult to bring it to screen well is that it's all about Parker's flat affect, and on screen, where we aren't being given the narration, and we aren't being given that middle section from the perspective of other characters that really widens out the book in each of them we're just stuck with a dude who doesn't talk and doesn't show emotion. And each of the different movie versions has tried to deal with that in a different way with point blank coming closest just by being more artsy about it. But it's a, it's a tough thing to represent him on screen. And it's something I feel like the people who regularly complain about bad screen adaptations of this books don't quite ever acknowledge that. Yeah, they're bad, but it's a difficult thing to pull off. Yeah. But yeah. But what would you do? So, you know, yeah. they, they so, never think about what, what they would do if it was their problem. Yeah, and, and it is a serious problem because it is the core of the identity of this character is are things that do not represent well on screen. So, um, so sorry, so back, back to my favorite of what sticks out at me most. Um, I, I, I find myself, I love Butcher's Moon, but I find myself thinking most about the score and Slayground. Part of that is the audacity of both. Uh, the score in particular, because it's an audacious scheme for the heisters, they're going to knock off this whole town. There's going to, they're going to have 15 of them. And also because it is one of the many cases of Parker violating his own rules. He, he has a long standing rule. Well, we are familiar with it by then through a couple different points in books where he says, if a job takes more than five guys, it is not a job that can be done. And he says that to these guys at the start of the of the job, but then it keeps nagging at him because he's he starts. You watch the professional's mind at work. Um, there's a moment in I think the outfit where he's getting his truck worked on, and the the guy who's working on it is kind of grumpy, and then starts out, and then Westlake just throws in a line something like, "But he was a professional, and it represented an interesting problem." So after a few hours, he was no longer even really thinking about it, just working along steadily. And it's kind of like that. This problem enters Parker's head and he mm-hmm. just keeps at it and can't stop and can't give it up. So then you get the score, which is this big cinematic thing with a dozen or 15 guys and six different locations in town and things go wrong, but it's also just brilliantly successful in its way. And it's so much fun. And Slayground is kind of the opposite of that, stripping everything down. It's just Parker trapped in an amusement park by some guys of questionable competence, but they've got guns and he doesn't. And how do you survive? It's the most dangerous game where Parker is the, is the quarry and they don't quite realize, the hunters don't quite realize what it is they've trapped. As far They know he's, what they're trying to get, but they haven't realized quite how dangerous this game is. 
and it's just fun to watch him. It, it, it man against it's not man against nature, but it has that feel almost man man against implacable forces using all but basically nothing but his own recourse, his own wits, his own abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I come I come to those. There's a um, and then in going back to specific scenes, and this is one of the quieter scenes, but in the score. Grofield meets a woman who I believe ends up being the woman he marries and tucks away in his quiet theater, Summerstock Theater in Indiana, where he goes when he's not working. Yes. Um, and she becomes a housewife, if I remember right, or, or a teacher, some, something quiet and not heisterish at all. Um, and so he, he meets her during this heist, and he tries, he takes her with him. And Parker basically says, God damn it. Okay. For now, we'll, he, he sees it as, I'm not going to kill her right now. It's more trouble than it's worth. Let's get out of town, go divvy up the money, and then we'll deal. And in Parker's mind, she's dying before they leave. There's no way she's going with them. And then you get the most amazing scene where he talks to Grofield, and then he quizzes her, and he just kind of pushes her to establish, is this woman really what Grofield thinks she is? Is she, is she strong enough? and different enough from the run-of-the-mill people that I can actually, that she actually will go with him and not be a threat to us in the future. And he decides that she is. And you are not expecting her to live through this encounter, and I think neither is she, surely. And it's tense and fascinating for for a fairly early, I think it's the seventh or eighth book, um, fairly early insight into how Parker's mind works and how Westlake sees him interacting with people. That's a that's a tremendous moment in there, and I think it was uh, the the other moment that stands out in my mind. And I think it was either I think it was the score or it was this one. The jugger he thought was the worst of the bunch, and I didn't see it. The jugger was the one, yeah. And I I think he's I think he's wrong. I've always been surprised by that assessment, but but go ahead. That moment, spoiler alert. Um, that moment where he kills the kid in the basement. Yeah. I mean, very few times in my life have I taken a book and gone, ah, you know. Yeah, it, that's a moment where, and again, I think I think Westlake sells that book short because he if I, he doesn't really buy his own explanation for why Parker goes to deal with this. The he's in later years he would complain about that book, saying basically that Parker gets soft and tries to go help. Um, is it Handy? I think it's Handy. Mm. tries to go help his, or is it Joe? It's his old Joe. friend Joe. Joe. Um, but in reality, in the book, explicitly, it's not that Parker gives a, anything about Joe. It's that he's worried about what Joe might have left behind that could cause him problems. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And that sense. to me seems like a, yeah. And now the fact that he sticks around a little longer in the town than he might have and deals with this situation, maybe not, but it's it's convincing enough to work. And then there are scenes like the one with the kid where you are just really brought up against who Parker is. And I think that's effective and really startling. So in, the, in a way, but I, I actually, that scene calls to mind, um, in a, in a kind of slant oblique way, some scenes from like pet cemetery where, where Stephen King is forcing you to think about the risks that face young, face children and families. And it's hard to read. And I think in a very, very different way, that's, that comes to mind with the Westlake where, and he kills a kid. Yeah. yeah. There's a, uh, 
it happened another time. This is completely different, but in the uh, in the Iliad, there's this book called uh, Marauding Through the Night, and Odysseus and Diomedes go out and they do this raid. They're seeing what's going on and they catch a spy, and they're interrogating the Trojan spy about what's going on. And like halfway through the conversation, Diomedes just kills him, and it's absolutely brutal. And I think that's one of those things where this is, I think, part of why people responded so with such power to the early George R. R. Martin novels in, in the Song of Ice and Fire is because he, in the early books at least, less than the later ones, he treated these characters as if they were genuinely at risk. And you as the reader don't expect that because we've entered into a contract implicitly that these are the characters we're following, they're going to be fine, or most of them are going to be fine, or at least the ones we've thought of as the main the protagonists are going to be fine, because that's how a book works. And even by the third or fourth time, he, he, Martin demonstrates that that's not the case. It's shocking, and it, it revives that sense of danger in fiction that I think is hard to recapture. And I think, I think you're right, something like the, the scene in the Iliad where it's just sudden and you didn't see it coming and oh my lord or same thing with with the parker books like you think things are happening one way because this is a book you're reading and then suddenly no actually briefly this is a weird kind of reality that you're being shown the the uh the other thing and it's all there's all these little moments that um stark westlake has in these books that all of a sudden his writing you just you just see how good it is even though sometimes it's very, he does very minimal things. But in the score, that scene where Grofeld is imagining the soundtrack, and he's imagining what he's doing <laughs> as he's bored, I think only well, and, only books can do that. Yeah, well, and Grofeld is such a great example of the of Westlake's range and the joy he seems to have taken in it, because it. Parker didn't necessarily need a foil, and he doesn't have a foil in most books, but it's fun to once in a while throw in somebody who's completely different, and it's more fun if he's also very good at this. He's one of, he's a guy Parker really counts on, because although they're taking a completely different approach to these things, he is great at it. And I, I think of that in context of my own workplace, like my, my right-hand person here at the office tonight, we have very different styles. We co-manage a big group of people, and... It's funny, every once in a while we'll both send instructions or directions to people and they are completely opposite approaches, coming to the same conclusion. And I think, yeah, you know, you can do things in different ways. And it's fun to watch Westlake play with that in such an extreme fashion with Grofield and Parker. Well, we've got our favorite, we've got our favorite villain, which would be Parker. Um, I'm, and, and I think you've talked about this before, which is you're a little ashamed about how much you like this awful character. Like it, it, it doesn't sit well with you when you like this guy. Yeah. So much. yeah. And you, I mean, you can't make a justification for it. You can say you admire his capability, but you know, the thing he's good at does lead to people being killed. You know, that it's not a planned thing, but it happens. And although I will say, I think Westlake wrote some more reprehensible villains um, there's the guy in, I, I, I'm going to get, the, I believe it's too much, T.W.O. much, who is, this is one of his kind of, his standalone, almost throwaway books from the seventies, 
where this guy meets a young woman on Fire Island one summer at a wild party and realizes that she's twins and she's they're both they're heiresses. He manages to convince these twins that he is also identical twins with the plan, the explicit plan of marrying them both, murdering them both, and getting their money. And yet, it is hard when you're reading that book, when he suffers setbacks, you want him to overcome them, even though every fiber of your being is telling you otherwise. Like Westlake was so good at making you taking you by the hand and just making you feel what he wanted you to feel about characters when you knew better. The thing about Parker, of course, is he's in some ways slightly less reprehensible than that, but he also, you are with him much more and much longer in so many different situations that you, you just come through it knowing you shouldn't, but really liking and admiring. Liking's not right, I guess, but admiring admiring is the right admiring. Like you, you see this man as a incredibly talented professional, and there's no question that there are things about his approach to life that you kind of want to emulate, even as you look through your fingers and don't want to see what it all means. Uh, like uh, like the rare coin score, right? You have him where he picks up. Um, uh, where he picks up Claire. Yeah. Yes, and sort of the way he he wins her and the way the thing that happens to that character and just the whole you really i think it also might be you're given a choice of people in this universe and of people in this world well you don't want to like that guy you're not going to like that guy <laughs> um, well and that and actually the relationship with claire is also just really fascinating because it's we are only given you know probably in total what 30 pages of claire over the course of the the 15 books where she is part of the story, but you do get a feeling that if there's anything in this world that makes Parker resemble a human, it's, it's that it's, he does actually feel something for Claire, even if he can't or wouldn't articulate it. And what, what is, what does she get out of this? It's, it's a, I think you, I at least buy it completely even though it's not a relationship you could boil down and say well here's why it works or here's what it consists of it, there's a lot of shadow and, and uncertainty there i think even within each of the people in the relationship but it somehow once you can become convinced that she falls for him and she goes with him then the rest of it feels like something that actually is real within that world and, and like you said so much of it happens we don't get to see it but he always returns home. They never yeah. talk about and, it. They have this uneasy truce. Like, what would what would it be like to be married so, to someone who works on, uh, you know, oil rigs? Yeah, or and also where you don't know what oil rig they're working on, and you will not be told if they die. They just won't come home. Yeah, and there's there's moments in the books that are explicitly that discussion or the valence of that discussion when Parker is setting out and that's what's between them at that moment is mm-hmm. they've talked about it. She has a plan for what she will do if he doesn't come back within X number of months. And that's a strange thing and powerful. That Yeah, that's, that's all I got. I could, I mean, I could talk for longer, but I'm sure you have stuff to do. 
uh, I probably should go deal with the things I should deal with. But, yeah. but it's great to talk to you. I really enjoyed this. Uh, thanks for thanks for reaching out to me and for being persistent when I was being small. Oh, no problem. And I'll let you know. I'm going to get it edited and in the queue. I'll let you know when it comes out. And um, did you did you listen to any of the other interviews? I I, I do good audio. So. I was just listening to Andy Weir today, and it was great. Really enjoying it. Um, and the nice thing about this too, and I don't know whether you, you probably have this where I am in the world. I don't really. The, the amount of people that who have really deeply read a book and thought about story in the way that we've just had a conversation, when mm-hmm. people talk about books, it just seems to be very trivial, most of it, or movies or stories. Um, so it, this is self-serving. It's my excuse to have these conversations. Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. It's, and like I said, it's fun for me to have a reason to talk about Parker. Yeah. You know, it's because it, you, you, there's a lot to dig into. Thank you very much, Levi. I really appreciate it. Have, have a great rest sure. of the day. All right, take care. Bye. Levi is also the editor of a book called The Getaway Car, a collection of Donald E. Westlake nonfiction miscellany, which includes all of the best stuff that Westlake wrote about writing. He wrote over a hundred books in his run and was simply a master. So if you're going full geek for Parker, guilty as charged, or are a writer, it's well worth your time to check it out.